you have indeed spoken to us, our Lord, in your written word. You spoke to your people in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days you have spoken to us in a son, and that revelation of your son is on the pages of Scripture, on all of the pages of Scripture. And so it is there that you speak, it is there that we seek to hear your voice, and it is there that your words are recorded to us and made alive to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Holy Spirit, for that ministry this morning, that you would take your words, take the words of the risen Lord, the words of the Father, and plant them deep in our hearts and shape and mold us form us into the image of the one whose image we bear, namely that of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter. We're returning back to 1 Peter after, I guess, about three weeks that we've been out of it. Pastor Malviso, Malvaso was here, and then we had a couple weeks of baptisms. What a joy that was. And so we'll pick it back up this morning, and then uh, Pastor Mavessel will be back uh, this next Sunday, and then uh, we'll come back in two weeks to uh, finish this section. And we find ourselves then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And, of course, as we come back into the book of 1 Peter, we come back into the theme of 1 Peter, which is mainly Christian suffering, how Christians suffer, why Christians suffer, how we are to respond as Christians to suffering. That is at the very heart of Peter's epistle. Remember, he's writing to those who are scattered abroad because of their testimony of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we come back again to this idea of suffering, we, we listen to that word and we hear it with a bit of difficulty, I think, sometimes, particularly in our context. And in, suffering is a difficult concept for us in in a few different ways, in a few different senses. First of all, for us, it can be a difficult concept to understand, really, because we experience so little of it in many ways. We know little of the physical suffering that many of our brethren do around the world, the political oppression of many of our brethren around the world and nations who are, by political commitment, opposed to the Christian gospel, economically, socially, We experience some measure of suffering, but nothing that can be compared to the extreme suffering of our brethren in Muslim worlds and communist countries and so forth. And as many of our brethren throughout the history, we marvel at the faith of those who went before us who were martyrs who died with such courage as they lost their lives even under terrible circumstances for the gospel of Christ. And of course, some weren't able to persevere all the way to the end and in the face of such suffering, renounced their faith and then came back and some never came back. But persecution and suffering and severe suffering has been a part of the, the church since its inception. And we don't experience that as much here in our period of existence and the history of the world in America, and so it can be difficult for us to relate in some ways. Secondly, it can be difficult for us because the idea of suffering for many is hard to grasp in light of the realities of God's goodness and God's sovereignty. How can God be good and allow suffering? How can God be good and sovereign and allow evil to have such rise and to cause such havoc and to bring such misery into this world? Wouldn't he protect his loved ones 
It can cause a spiritual dilemma for some to think of and to experience and to realize the reality of suffering in this world, the suffering of God's children particularly. And third, it can be hard to square with the gospel in the minds of many. And the certainty of the gospel, and certainly the gospel as we are presented with it in much of our, again, American context. That is our context. That's what we have to address the most. It is hard to to receive the gospel that has such promise of blessing and prosperity as it's so often presented and to match that up with the rejection and the persecution and the suffering that in the trials that so many experience because of that very gospel. Those who are taught that the gospel brings only good things and doesn't bring us low and actually strip us bare is in fact uh, a kind of gospel that can bring confusion when suffering comes. All that being said, however, the instructions of Peter are really not so far removed from us and our situation and the situation of Christians throughout the history of the world. We are not so far removed from suffering in all of its principles and parts, and that's good in one sense because, as we'll learn today, God has designed good things in suffering, and suffering is, in fact, an affirmation of our belonging to Him. And nor do we deny that these principles for suffering that Paul Peter gives to us are the same principles that teach us to live godly and circumspectly in this world. So one demonstration of that is that although we do not know the kind of severe suffering, the physical, political, economical, and so forth, of many of our brethren around the world, the suffering of God takes on many forms. And even for Peter's readers, not all of them, and particularly at this time, were under the threat of the sword. Not all of them were under threat of imprisonment at this particular time. There was a kind of suffering that we see throughout the letter of 1 Peter, which involved social shame which was a kind of burden that many of them had to bear, a kind of reproach from the culture at large, a kind of being humbled and brought low and shamed before neighbors and in one's own family and one's own household. Second, these truths prepare us, as I mentioned, the principles that help us to suffer well are the same principles that motivate us to live faithfully to Christ in every area of life, to live joyfully under His rule. So as we look here at the idea of suffering that Peter picks up again with a renewed focus in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4, he's teaching us basically this, that suffering for Christ is a part of this present world, but can be endured well and with joy, and a joy that runs deeper than the pain and that lays hold of the glories to come. Let me just repeat that. That suffering for Christ is a part of this present world, but it can be endured well and with a joy that runs deeper than the pain and lays hold of the glories to come. We could even say because it lays hold of the glories to come and embraces fully the life of Christ. Now we're going to look at this over the next couple weeks. We're going to look at this under four principles of how to suffer well. Four principles of suffering well. We'll look at the first one this morning in the next three in a couple of weeks. Let me mention them to you. The first is that we need to think according to reality, present reality and future reality. We need to think in quarter, according to reality. Secondly, we need to lay hold of our position in Christ. You need to lay hold of your position in Christ. Thirdly, we glorify God for our salvation from judgment. 
when we have an understanding of what we have been saved from and we glorify God for our salvation from judgment. And fourthly, when we trust God for doing what is good. Let me read our passage and then we'll look at this first point. Uh, Beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are being reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For... It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Look back up at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This is an invitation by Peter to think according to reality. And that is the first point. To think according to reality, both present and future. Now, in light of the nature of 1 Peter, as written to those who are scattered again because of persecution, and in light of the many exhortations that he's already giving, it's somewhat surprising that we come to this command where he tells them to not be surprised. In fact, the abruptness of this and the stark change from everything that he said before in terms of why they would be surprised has caused some to say that this was written at a later date, that 1 through 11 was the original epistle and then later uh, he came in or someone else came in and added from 12 on to the very end. So striking it is. And yet that's not the case. We see that it quite well accords with everything that Peter has already been teaching. What's going on here then? While Peter has laid a foundation for the believer's hope in Christ as he begins his epistle and all the way from chapter 1, 3 down to about verse 12, Peter is laying a theology of hope for the Christian that we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven, an inheritance that will not fade away, an inheritance that cannot be taken away, an inheritance for which we are protected by the power of God through faith, an inheritance in which it will end in glory, an inheritance that was proclaimed in the Old Testament and brought to life and reality in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection for us. He laid a foundation for our hope in Jesus Christ. And then after that, beginning in verse 13 down to chapter 411, he gave instructions on how we are to live consistent with this hope. How are we as believers to respond to the persecution, to the unrighteousness, and to the suffering that comes to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so he lays down some very specific instructions for us in the larger section. And now he turns his address to believers more directly to make known what is to be the believer's internal response to suffering. He's laid down our hope in suffering, instructions on how to suffering, and now he addresses the inner life of the believer in the midst of this suffering. 
It's specifically the suffering then that comes to Christians. And he is concerned for us to think and to feel and to respond internally, rightly to it. And so he says, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you. And they were undergoing a fiery ordeal. Again, that's the whole theme of the letter. Now, I want to make clear again that this is likely not the persecution of the state that would come later. The persecution that would come after the burning of Rome in 64 AD by the hands of Nero, who was a crazed leader at that time of Rome, who would try to find a scapegoat in the already hated, for the most part, Christians and perpetrate against them the most incredible crimes and atrocities in order to remove guilt or blame that could have been directed toward him. That was coming. That was on the horizon. The letter that we read earlier of the governor Pliny in which some of the Christians are being tortured or imprisoned or put to death because they would not sacrifice to Rome, acknowledging the supremacy of the Caesar as the ruler of even a god on earth. That persecution was coming, but it's not so clear that that was yet among them. It was in some level. That's why they were scattered. But rather, this reference to the fiery ordeal seems to be more the kind of social, cultural, and family burdens and suffering that they were bearing, the kind of ridicule, the kind of being maligned, the kind of being blamed unrighteously and unjustly by an ungodly culture. These... He's addressing that kind of fiery ordeal that is laying the foundation for the greater sufferings that were right around the corner. The kind of suffering that comes in one's own home when a wife is ridiculed and put down and belittled because of her faith in Christ. The kind of suffering that comes when we are blamed for sins and slandered as evildoers because of our good deeds and our faith in Christ. And so on. That was certainly being experienced by them. And it was enough, even at that level, to cause in some of them, or to be tempted to cause in some of them, a kind of bewilderment or shock at the hostile reaction that they were receiving because of their faith in Christ. And so he says to them, Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. You could, you could say, Do not think it strange. Do not think it is something unusual. Do not think of it as something that is unexpected that has come to you. It's the idea of finding something strange, the term there. Don't find it strange. Don't be surprised. And this is really the flip side of what he said up in verse 4. If you're looking at First Peter, he says, using the same term of the unbelievers who had turned... On those who made a profession of Christ. He says in verse 4. In this way they are surprised. That you do not run with them. Into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. And so there he's saying. Don't be surprised. If you've experienced this transformation. If you've moved from darkness to light. From unrighteousness to righteousness. From ungodliness to godliness. From disobedience to obedience. Don't be surprised if those who you formerly ran with. All of a sudden don't understand you. And in fact are hostile against you. Don't be surprised at that. 
Or he's saying there that they are surprised that you no longer do these things. And now he's saying to them in verse 12, don't be surprised then at what comes as a consequence of that. They're surprised at the change, but you shouldn't be surprised at their reaction. That's the idea. And so he picks up that theme. Nonetheless, some were surprised. And again, we're having a difficulty understanding this. And this is because there is a tendency in our heart that is especially true for us, but has been true for many believers throughout, and even some of these who are reading this letter for the first time, that faith in Christ and the transformation of loving our neighbor, the transformation of telling the truth, the transformation of being faithful within our families and within our homes and our marriages should bring the admiration of the world. You would think that it would bring a kind of blessing from the world. There's a natural tendency to think that way. And so suffering seems to be abnormal. Why would that happen? It seems to be something out of the usual. And in one sense, this is actually true. Sin and suffering and death are intruders in God's creation. There's a, there's a natural longing of the soul to think that righteousness would bring harmony with our surroundings because, all, because of an agreement in what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. There's, there's a certain rightness about that, and there is a, a certain a part, even a most fundamental part, where death is an intruder into God's creation. It's a result of sin. It'll be eradicated. Tears and pain and suffering are an intruder in God's creation, and one day those will be eradicated, and they will be no more. One caught this author and said, the idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering, despite universal suffering and death, remains a lingering echo of life in Eden as God created before the fall. It is also a longing for the time when there will be no more tears, suffering, pain, and death. That's a good statement. In other words, that longing matches up with something that's right and good and true about creation and about our redemption. However, until that day comes, sin and all of its consequences and all of its manifestations are a part of this first creation under the curse. So then why are we so often surprised at the hostility that comes to us as a result of the testimony of Christ? Why does that seem to catch so many off guard and to seem to be so ununderstandable? And essentially, what's behind this then is it's a failure to grasp reality. It's a failure to grasp Reality. What reality? Well, the reality of this present world and its condition and the reality of the future that God has planned for us. And that's what we're going to consider in this first point. Verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He calls us then to think about reality and to think about reality in relation to our present circumstances. And there are two implicit ways that he says that's in one explicit parts of this reality. The first implicit way is this. He wants us to think rightly then about the reality of sin and the devil's influence on this world. Like that's part of the gospel, is the reality of human sin, the the effects that the, the curse has brought. And the reality of the devil's existence, a personal and real and... Maleficent being who wants the destruction of all that is good and right and holy and beautiful, all that is of God. Reality is that this world is fallen. 
The reality is, is that sin encompasses and defines and is the primary influencer on our human experience in this world. But we're so used to living in a world, more specifically in our case, again, a culture and society where success and safety and satisfaction from life are made their own gods. They are the expectation of our dreams. It's so ingrained in our minds that this is something we're entitled to as being human, that this is something that is ours almost by divine right to have this in this world, that we forget that that there is a reality to our human condition and a battle that rages all around us that is a threat to us. And it's the devil's goal to destroy us. Really, rather than being surprised at the fiery ordeals that come to us as a result of our faith in Christ, it should be an amazement that we live in the comforts that we do and that it doesn't happen more often. We should actually be amazed that we don't suffer more than we do for the name of Christ at this point. How do you grasp the reality of human sin? How do you grasp the reality of human sin? Scripture makes some pretty deep and all-encompassing statements about our condition. Even speaking to the church, he says this, you were formerly... You're familiar with this in Ephesians 2. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, unregenerate people order their lives according to the blinding influence of satanic influence, of satanic working. The unregenerate heart is unable and unwilling to perceive the truth and the glory of God in Christ. That means when we look at our nation in America, when we look at any country around the world, when we look at any epoch in the history of man, the dominant spiritual nature that is revealed is one of darkness, blindness, ignorance, and rejection of the truth and rejection of Christ, rejection of God's purposes in this world. If we grasp that, then when it actually happens, it should not surprise us. The doctrine of human sin or total depravity doesn't mean, of course, that everybody's as bad as they could be and we praise God that they're not, but it does mean that every part of our humanity, our mind, our will, and our affections is corrupted by sin. Not everybody expresses it in the same degree and so we can kind of forget that when we have good neighbors, when we have semi-righteous laws that protect the innocent. We can forget that as we live in this world in which so much of the evil of the human heart is restrained by God. We can forget that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Every part of humanity outside of Christ is corrupted by sin, is unyielded to his will, and has within it the potential to commit all kinds of treachery. All kinds of treachery. Even the Jews who seem to be so well disposed to the goodness in the ministry of Christ and healing and teaching and so forth. At the end were some of them, many of them, were incited well enough to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Well enough to receive his miracles and yet could very easily turn on him in a moment and cry for his blood. Or family members can very easily turn on other family members. And Jesus warned a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That lays within the heart. And there is a day 
in which that will come on a more massive level, in which sin, the sin that runs so deep in the heart of man, will be given its full expression. You read Romans 1, we won't for time's sake. 2 Timothy 3, which is describing even the influence of sin within the church, is what is laden in the heart. He says, realize this in the last day, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. He's speaking to those under the umbrella of religion. And that's the description. And so this is what lies within the heart of man. And so we can praise God that it doesn't have its fullest expression yet, but it will get a fuller and fuller expression as we get nearer to the end. And so when we grasp that, it takes away the shock when fiery ordeals arise. Not the sadness, but it takes away the shock. Do we grasp then the depth of human sin and the depth of the devil's influence on this world? Again, common grace restrains evil. And we can forget that this present world, while experiencing much of the goodness and the love of God and his care for all of his image bearers, is yet also under the dominant influence of the evil one. And that's one day going to be removed. That's one day going to be removed. And the proliferation of evil and wickedness and hatred against the truth is going to be unleashed. Revelation 24, John says, this is... Speaking of the time is actually of the resurrection after the return of Christ. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. In Revelation 6, seeing a vision of those in heaven, even as these judgments were in the beginning of their being unleashed, John says this, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. In other words, there is a, there is a time of the unleashing of what is evil on the earth in such a way that to name the name of Christ universally will bring death. Will bring death. That is the time of the rise of the Antichrist. And as John said in his epistles, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in this world. 1 John 4. Already in this world, working, preparing, moving towards this end. And the reality is that God has sovereignly permitted Satan to wield a dominating influence on this present world under sin. That's a world that we as believers have been rescued out of. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain or the the authority, the control of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He took us out of that world and now we stand in conflict to it. When Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and his glory, he was in his right to do so. They were his to offer. In 1 John five nineteen, he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This means then that Satan is the primary moral and spiritual influence of this world, of this world's culture and rebellion to God, of its politics and its false religion. Have its main influencer, the evil one. 
And he wields this in a variety of ways, and one of which is persecution, which Peter is going to address in chapter, verse 8 of chapter 5. Be of sober spirit on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, don't be then surprised. If we grasp the fallenness of the human heart, if we grasp the reality that Satan is an active in this world under the sovereign hand of God, but given, which has been given to him, and if we understand that Satan is a murderer from the beginning, and even Jesus said to those who wanted to put him to death, you want to do the desire of your father, if we realize that the influencer of this world has as his deepest and greatest passion the destruction of all that reflects God, then it shouldn't surprise us when it comes, these fiery ordeals. We shouldn't be surprised when certain groups rise to power and start espousing more publicly a hatred for all things that are Christian. It grieves us. It may anger us, but it shouldn't surprise us. It only should surprise us when we don't understand these realities. And let me add another. It's a matter of understanding the reality of the true hostility between darkness and light. At the core of it, darkness hates light. Jesus told his unconverted brothers that the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. He told his disciples before his departure, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. John writes to the church, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you in 1 John three thirteen, Don't be surprised. Don't marvel is actually the... The term that John uses in his epistle. Don't marvel at this. Don't be amazed at this. What else did you expect? What else would you expect if you're light in a world in darkness? If you're pursuing righteousness in a world that's under sin? If you're pursuing godliness against the influencer of one who hates all that reflects the glory of God? In fact, some of the saddest words of Scripture are found in the prologue of John. I'm just going to mention this and I want to be sure to have plenty of time to get to the end here. But in 1 John, he says this. You, you remember these words. In him was life and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Possibly say overtake it, did not destroy it, did not overcome it. He says later in verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man and he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Now you can read that and it can sound a, a little bit benign. They did not receive him. But his own not receiving him ended up in what? His death. is killing him. Darkness is not neutral to light, and we really have to grasp that. Darkness is not neutral to light. It wants to overcome it, and it wants to destroy it. When Paul says in Romans 8 that unbelief suppresses or hinders or holds down the truth and unrighteousness, this resistance to the truth is not congenial. It's not merely intellectual or religious, though it includes those things, but it encompasses the hostile reaction against the truth from rejecting it. Again, we see this in our culture today. The intention behind some of these immoral movements isn't merely to have equal freedoms. It is to destroy anything that would threaten its full practice, right? 
The new atheism wasn't merely saying Christians are stupid. It was to say Christians are evil and need to be stopped. The homosexual agenda isn't saying we want equal rights. They're saying we want you to totally affirm our lifestyle. And if you don't, and anything that would smack of any resistance to that needs to be destroyed and put away. You see, that's what sin aims at. There is no, there is no compromise with darkness. There's no compromise with a nation that seeks your destruction, as we see even played out on the political realm. And so it is here. There is no no friendliness between light and darkness. In 1 Peter, again, the people who are surprised you did not run with them did not simply say, okay, I see that's best for you. They maligned you. They opposed you. They set themselves all of a sudden against you. Why? Because you became a threat to the full indulgence of their sin. You became an exposer of it. And so there it is. So we should not be surprised then at the moral, at the outrage of the moral revolution in our day. We should not be surprised by the ascendancy of the influence of unrighteousness in our culture. We should be thankful that God has held it off as much as he has. And we should pray that he would continue to do so. But we should not be surprised when unrighteousness rears its ugly head. He also gives another reason we shouldn't be surprised, as he's already told us, is because God has ordained this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering, to test us. He says, which comes upon you for your testing. In other words, we're not surprised because we've laid hold of the fact that this is the means of God proving and perfecting our faith. That's consistent throughout the epistle and all of Scripture. He already said that back at the beginning. Again, you're familiar with this. Verse 6, chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the purpose is that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of your faith proves your faith and perfects not only your character, but your hope, your longing for that future day of being with Christ. And in fact, our being perfected by this, our being tested, is really no different than what Christ himself had to endure. It's no different than what he himself subjected himself to willingly in becoming flesh. Listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. We share then in the same kind of suffering That Christ himself endured. Now his suffering was unique in this way. His obedience in his suffering was to prove his perfection. To prove his sinlessness. To mature his obedience and take it to the farthest possible human depths that are conceivable within God's universe. So that he could be the perfect unassailable substitute for all of humanity that would trust in him. 
And there is a sense when we follow that same way, our obedience is perfected as we're required to obey at greater and greater and greater consequences to our obedience. There's something that's unique to us that was not to Christ, and that is the way that the trials purify us as well, and they burn away the dross. And that's part of what Peter has in mind here. He's reflecting, no doubt, Psalm 66.10, where he says, You have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. What's the connection here? The idea of the burning and of the fiery ordeal is that of a purifying and a perfecting. You would take a pure metal, you would heat it to degrees that it would melt, and the melting, the impurities would come out and rise to the surface, and the result would be a more pure metal. And that's part of what is... God's intentions here for us to make us more pure, to make us more holy, to share in the peaceful fruit of his righteousness. And he may, in fact, even be reflecting Malachi 3, which anticipated this kind of work, which, again, is consistent with God's work throughout Scripture with his people. Who can... He says in verse 3, He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Looking to the way he was going to purify his old covenant people, Israel, and those who were committed to offering sacrifices to him. It's as silver. And so Peter is careful to note here that we should realize that our suffering for Christ is God's means of proving our faith. It has come upon us for our testing. And that means that it can have one of two results. I'm going to mention these. One of two results then that it can have. It can go in two directions when we're, when we're tried. One is it can draw us nearer to Christ in humility and trust. It can draw us nearer to Christ in humility and trust when we experience these kind of trials. It's not to say that there isn't a kind of struggle that we might have to work through. It isn't to say that we wouldn't have to work through doubts. It isn't to say we have to work through our own weakness. It isn't to say that we will never fail. It is to say that overall, in the big picture, what it will do for God's people is perfect them. Psalm 119.67, you're familiar Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's what the kind of suffering, purifying effect is to have on us. Paul said, to turn there, I'll mention it, 2 Corinthians 12, this thorn in my flesh, this suffering that you would not remove, even though I entreated the Lord three times, he said, was there to keep me from exalting myself. It was to keep me humble. And Paul said, what? Then I will boast in my weakness. It drew, all, it drew him nearer for the psalmist and for Paul and for God's people throughout. The suffering made us feel, makes us feel our weakness and it makes us feel the littleness of our strength so that we would turn to God and know his strength. It makes us long to be nearer to him and to know his upholding grace within our hearts. The testing can make us Rejoice and seek him all the more that he would sustain us and prove us as his own beloved, as his own children. It can have that effect. It should have that effect. Or it can push us away, make us cold to the things of the Lord, make us doubt and make us question God. Or even worse, as in the case of Job at the very end, though he repented, make us accuse God of doing something unjust and unfair 
and not right. So it can draw us nearer or it can push us away. It has another effect too, more consistent really in line even with what Peter's saying here, is it can prove our faith or it can cause us to fall away. That's a warning throughout Scripture, isn't it? For believers, it can prove faith. That's what he had already said in verse 1 or chapter 1. But for some, it can have the opposite effect. In Matthew 13, he says this. Speaking, he says in verse 20, the one who has, on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He warns in Hebrews, don't fall away from the living God when the persecution arises, but prove your faith by remaining. Now, why is that an important thing to know? One is because it stands as a warning and a guard for those who are in the midst of persecution and are in danger of falling away. That was the whole point of Hebrews and others. It's a warning that they should feel in our conscience to cause them to hold on. But it has another part, too, that I want to mention here that will relate more a little bit more directly or immediately to us. It's this. It is a reminder to be clear with the gospel. It's a reminder to be clear with the gospel when we present it. If we leave out the consequences of following Christ, if we somehow try to sugarcoat the gospel enough so that it won't be distasteful to the unfallen heart or to the timid of heart then we are presenting something that is untrue. See, Jesus said to his disciples who couldn't understand a Messiah who was going to be crucified, who had no concept at that time of a kingdom that required suffering. To them, it was only victory. But Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And if we don't make the cost of following Christ clear, then young Christians or young professors are dismayed when difficulties come. And maybe they can even doubt God's goodness or be confused about His sovereignty or be brought to question if it's all worth it. While the ways and the opportunities that we have to share the gospel are varied, to be sure, but at the heart of it, we must stand firmly and stably on a firm doctrine of sin and atonement and faith and repentance and make sure that those things are clear as best we can. What we win people with, we win them too. That's a pithy little statement that has a lot of truth. If you win them to pleasure and blessing and only victory, then that will be what they expect. That's what they're won too. And when it doesn't materialize, there's confusion or abandonment. If we win them only with security and promises of abundance, and then when that doesn't materialize, they're left with confusion and abandonment. What we call them win them to with, we win them to. But when we lay hold of these truths at the very beginning of the gospel and we call people to faith consistent with these truths, then there's the ability to stand firm when opposition arises. And we will not be surprised at suffering, but ready. And here's where we're going to end there. And I want to mention this here. And we're going to pick this up in two weeks. But God calls us to something more here. 
One, he tells us to think rightly about the present. That means to be, think rightly about sin, to think rightly about the devil's influence in this world, to think rightly about the conflict that there really exists between darkness and light, to think rightly about the way that God sanctifies us in this world through testing our faith. But then he points us to something even greater than that in verse 13. He says that we need to think rightly and think about reality in terms of our future glory and grace. Look what he says. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And this is the climactic paradox of the gospel. And yet it's at the very heart of faith. The paradox is this. The juxtaposition of suffering and joy in the experience of the believer. The way these two things are set across from each other and side by side. There's suffering and there's joy. Nothing can seem more antithetical to common sense and reason and logic than to say suffering should bring joy. And these are the kind of statements in Scripture that I know I'm included in this number. We can just kind of skip over with a kind of bewilderment. But we can't minimize the language of what he says here. And then if we do, we miss the great blessing of where he's leading us. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. What? That sounds bizarre. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. To grasp the fullness of the glory of Christ and our participation in his own suffering and the likeness of his own suffering of belonging to him and having that affirmed to us, of sharing with him in the eternal fruits of his glory as the Son and as our Savior. All of those things are what are revealed to our own conscience in our suffering and actually should produce joy. Again, these are the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ that we share in. You're familiar with this word koinonia. That's the term behind it that we participate in, that we share in, that we have in a likeness in common with him. In other words, it's the likeness of the suffering, the likeness of the suffering that comes to the righteous. And note what he says, not the suffering. He says the sufferings, plural. He's not talking about the suffering, the atoning suffering. We can't participate in that other than to receive it by faith, that he was the just who died for the unjust. But it is the sufferings of Christ. It is the multiple sufferings that came to him throughout his life as the Holy One in a world of darkness. John 1. It's that kind of suffering we do share in. That kind of suffering we do participate in. That kind of suffering we do have in common with our Savior. And he says here, knowing that should produce in us joy. And this isn't a suggestion. When he says, keep on rejoicing, it's an imperative, it's a command. Some have keep on rejoicing, some just have rejoice. It's present imperative for for those to whom that matters. What they're trying to capture in the translation is that it's not to be just a moment of rejoicing, but in the midst of the suffering, there is to be a continual attitude of rejoicing because of what that suffering indicates, and that is participation in the life of Christ. To say it means I belong to him. And again, this is the sufferings that come from being righteous, from being a follower of Christ. He'll make that clear in the, in the passage. 
It's the sufferings of Christ. It's not just suffering from living in a fallen world. That has its own role in terms of God's working through his providence to shape us. But here he's specifically focusing on those kind of sufferings that come, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, for being reviled for the name of Christ. And it's a suffering then that should lead us to meditate on the joy that is ours at the coming of Christ. Well, let me skip to the end. I want to at least make this point, even though we'll pick it up again next week. But he says here, for the purpose that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with the exaltation. How can we rejoice in the suffering? Because it's pointing us to the great reality of our sharing in his glory when he returns. It's the divine glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that he's speaking of here. It's the glory that reflects his own power, holiness, majesty, faithfulness, authority, and salvation. It's his glory. And the reality of that is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp the reality of this overwhelming joy that all of us who know him will know and feel and be full of at the return of Christ. At seeing him in all of his glory, of experiencing him in the full measure of our hearts, longing for him. Of seeing his glory and knowing that we were on his side. Of having our faith vindicated. Him who's able to make us stand in the presence of his glory with great joy, with exceeding joy. And I always, when I read that, imagine that one part of that exceeding joy is just going to be the fact that we're there. In the light of his holiness and knowing our sin and seeing the reality of what we've been saved from, how could we respond in any other way to be in joy than to be able to stand in the light of such glory and holiness, not with condemnation, but with acceptance. And this is the kind of glory that sustains God's people in suffering. It's the kind of glory that sustains us to live faithfully in this world and will rejoice with exaltation. One says it's the idea of exalting, jubilating, skipping, and bubbling over with shouts of delight. So we know little of the kind of suffering for Christ that many of our brethren do around the world, and we don't know what the future brings. But God does. God does. And he's prepared us for whatever he brings with these great and magnificent promises. We'll pick it up there in two weeks. Let me... Let me pray, and there are just a couple minutes over. So let me pray, and this will be our benediction. We'll be dismissed after this. Don't forget that there is fellowship dinner uh, following service, so please plan on staying and heading downstairs afterwards. Let me dismiss this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these promises. Help us to know the reality of them. And we know that it doesn't, while there is a unique grace that you give to us in suffering, we know that that grace doesn't come out of anywhere and that kind of preparedness doesn't come out of anywhere. But it's as we daily walk with our minds set on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. As we daily are turning from sin and seeking obedience to trust and obey as we sang about this morning. Daily as we're exposing ourselves to your word and seeking from you, Holy Spirit, to teach us and to shape us and to removing the veil and moving us from one image of glory to the next. That then we have hearts that are prepared and ready for what you bring. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be ready for your glory, for our happiness in you, and for our testimony to this world of your worthiness. And that you truly are a treasure worth losing all to gain. Work this in us by your grace. Forgive us when we sin. Pick us back up quickly 
when we confess and set us back, dust it off onto the path of righteousness for your name's sake. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen. We are dismissed.